everyone. Welcome back to Leadership, the podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders and review who is getting it right and who is stepping in it this week. Adriel, how are you doing this morning, my friend? I am okay. I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> just, just okay. Just you know okay. What? Sometimes that's all we can aim for. Yes. And that's okay. And I'm okay, okay with that. Okay is okay. I'm okay exactly. with okay. Yep. Exactly. Yep. How are you? I'm also just okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I like feel it was that. a frantic morning getting ready to record this morning sure. on top of a frantic week. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I'm, I've gotten to the point where it's so muddy in my head in terms of work and mm-hmm. family stuff. And it's like, you don't even know what you're stressed about anymore. It's no. just all like a, a mix of things going on yep. uh, in your head. Not unrelated to the thing that I wanted to deep dive on today. Just a little, just a little sneak preview. Yeah, looking um, forward to it. Yeah, but first, I mean, big news week. I feel like we say that every week. Every but single on week. On the, the things <laughs> that we have been talking about, lots of AI news, lots of election news. Yes. I mean, let's just briefly talk about this shit show that was the Trump town hall. Mm. And I want to talk about it from the angle of should CNN have gone this direction? Because I think that. We could talk about the politics of it, of course, and how, you know, from my perspective, it was batshit crazy, but not Truly. unexpected from Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot of pushback on CNN specifically, mm-hmm. like CNN not, you know, abdicating its journalistic responsibility a little bit by letting him kind of air his lies. Sure. And m- my perspective is I get, yeah, I think I agree with that, but also... It's a network that needs ratings. It's like, I I understand it from a business perspective, even if I wish they hadn't done it. Right. You know what I mean? Where do you where do you fall on that? I mean, it was a campaign rally. I mean, they let him just (laughs) run with it. I I think I was was. I was so done with it when he was praising the whole January 6th uh, incident. I just I couldn't believe pardon a bunch of them yeah. if he was reelected. Yeah. I mean, everything was showing just uh, his racism, his misogyny, his sexism, ev- everything was displayed and I I still can't wrap my head around why CNN chose t- to support it. I I, really I mean, we can't. know why. That's what I mean. Like we know they're <laughs> this is the big biggest ratings moment that they have had in It's so maybe unfortunate. Years. It's so unfortunate. But Yeah. Here we are. And it just, I, I think the reason people freaked out so much about it is because, you know, we all have PTSD from 2015, 2016, when yeah. he was just constantly given a platform, mm-hmm. no matter what he said, right. out, of, out of, you know, this, this idea that someone running for president should be aired. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, I think, you know, the networks learned a little bit, a little, you know, into 2020 eh. along those lines. I, yeah, I agree. It wasn't worth <laughs> a lot, maybe a little bit if I want to give them some credit. But I don't know. I think it. I think everyone had that same. I mean, we all share that same. Let's just call it collective trauma. Yeah. Of the of the Trump years, and and this felt like this felt like for the first time that coming back. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I I think just to see. I can't remember. I'm having a blur right now because I haven't had enough coffee. But just seeing him going through all of those like trials and that settlement on. Uh, potential sexual assault or abuse and then immediately after he has this town hall on cnn it's just like yeah it, it, only for the views and only defamed for the her again 
That was what was so fascinating. Yeah. The person who just won a lawsuit against yep. him for defamation, yep. he just went on and trash talked her. Didn't care. And I heard, I heard rumors. I don't remember from where that, that like she might just sue him again. As she should. Insane. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just such a circus. But it like, is. I just, I'm fascinated by if you were, if you were an, an executive at CNN, mm-hmm. how you make that kind of decision. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, this is a presidential candidate, and on the other hand. No, don't do it. Right. <laughs> but and I, I wonder, that, like, was, like, yeah, it was part of it. Like, we're just going to let him have this platform so he can so he can show the clown that he is or I, I just don't know. I don't know. And it obviously it wasn't ju- there wasn't just one decision maker. So <laughs> this went through. Yeah, of course. The chain yeah. of command. And wow. But wow. you got to think like a decision like this has to go pretty high up. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Has to. So. so you're you're in charge of CNN. You're trying to get you know your ratings on the on the right foot. What, how, what do you what decision do you make in this context? I'm, I'm let's let's empathize with them for a minute and try to, try to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, you know, I I work in DEI, so I'm all for hearing various perspectives. So I I don't think it's a bad idea to provide him with a platform, but I think there was opportunity for them to better guide the conversation. Um, so I think perhaps a different moderator would have helped. I don't know. It's still Trump at the end of the day. So it's hard to say. I I just hope that they are going to balance some things out and provide the same platform for, uh, you know, whoever decides to have a democratic town hall, if you will, (laughs) if that's even going to happen. But like, would they, would they have Biden come on and do the same thing? I think so. If he wanted to, yeah. If he I wanted surprised to, surprised if they didn't. Yeah. Um. I mean, I will say that Caitlin Collins did her best, right? Like she did. She for what? I, that form really, I don't think, set her up for success. Sure. Because you've got like Trump surrounded by a group of his fans. I mean, let's mm-hmm. be honest. And she's trying to push back, and basically they're booing her and cheering him. Like it's yep. not. It's not great. Right. But she did try to make an effort to like hold him accountable to when he was lying right um i just think that's not the that form is really hard to do that in right right what would you do i mean he called her called her nasty at one point like oh this is what like i just i can't even oh yeah what would you do if you were in leadership at cnn i i don't i think you're right that there is a case to be made that like this is someone from running running for president and Mm -hmm. people need to know who he is yeah you know like I just don't think this is the forum that I would have greenlit. Sure. Um, yes, it's a Republican primary. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea was, let's get him in front of Republican voters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, like, is CNN really the place you're going to find Republican voters? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe aspirationally. But I just don't think, I, I don't like the forum. It wasn't, it wasn't so much like giving him airtime, because I do agree if he's running for president, people need to know who he is. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think I would. I think I would have rethought the forum a little bit. Yeah, but it's tough. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm sympathetic. Like this is a tough editorial decision to make. Very much um, so. And the journalists, news media, whether it's broadcast or newspapers, or whatever, are going to have lots of tough editorial decisions to make Always. as this campaign goes on, as they have every single time he ran for president. We're on the third time now, which is exhausting. The third time There's so much How more are we left here? to do <laughs> oh goodness what else oh, is going on so many other things so we have a apparently a new tri- twitter ceo mm-hmm. linda uh, linda 
Yacanero? Is that how you say her last Yacarino, name? Yacarino, I believe. Name? I think Yacarino. it's Yacarino. That's probably better. Yeah, I think I butchered that. Um, <laughs> from NBC Universal, she has a media background. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, okay. Right. Like, I, I, I kind of read this like, great, somebody take the reins from Elon. Yes. How, what, what was your impression of her? Uh, the head twit has stepped down. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. I, I don't know much about her. Um, but yeah, I, someone, someone else needs to take the job on. So, yeah, um, I, I can't imagine her being this worse was, than him. Like coworkers of her saying this was like her dream job or like she, oh, was interesting. Built, she was made for this kind of job. So I don't know. We'll see. It just, it's fascinating to me to have, have a new CEO step in from a media background Yeah, and simultaneously be doing things like platforming Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you, if you think about wanting to create brand safety on Twitter, maybe yeah. that's the opposite of the thing you go to do. Do you know what yeah, I mean? for sure. Like, I just, I, I feel like he's saying one thing while doing the other. Like, he's trying to, he's trying to say, no, it's safe to come back to, mm-hmm. to brands, but, like, making decisions like that. So it'll be interesting to see how she, I don't know, moderates that influence or tries to, tries to create that safe environment. I mean, that, that's sure. got to be... Job number one, right? Make it safe for advertisers, advertisers again so you have some revenue coming in so that you can innovate on the product. Yeah, and I, I think she, it seems like she's going to come in and do that. I don't know if you heard about how she actually landed the job. Um, no. Apparently, yeah, so apparently she was interviewing uh, the head twi- the former head twit, <laughs> Elon. Um, <laughs> and I guess she was like pushing back on on him during the interview. And I don't know, I guess he huh. was like excited by it. And that landed her an interview. Um, which now put her into the role of CEO at Twitter. So really interesting stuff. And this was only a few ba- a few months back. So um, it was at a marketing conference in Miami. So um, yeah, I think she's going to have a pretty strong voice coming in. And you know, oh wait, so she was interviewing him on stage? Somewhere? Yes, yes, she was. She was oh, interviewing him on stage at a conference and pushed back on him. Um, and that led to them having other conversations and then interviewing her interviewing i'll use air quotes there because i don't know if there was really an interview um but yeah and i from what i heard she was really interested in twitter um and perhaps working there so yeah we'll see i think hopefully hopefully she'll she'll help bring some peace back to the platform Um, right the ship a little bit yeah yeah we'll see we'll see i mean musk has so much going on over at spacex and tesla and like why was he giving twitter so much I was gonna say so much airtime. I mean, that's literally it. It feels like it feels like it was driven more by his ego than. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say that. I was yeah. 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 Absolutely. Anyway, we'll see. Linda, we are all rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. Yes. We are all we are all excited about you. Yes. Um, one thing that I wanted to call out that just happened was an open AI Senate hearing. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you pay mm-hmm. much attention to that? I heard I mean, it was really it. about AI overall, but you know, the CEO of OpenAI testified. Yeah. Um, as did a few other experts calling for regulation. It was interesting that uh, some of the regulation he called for, some people called out, were, were specifically, you know, kind of like pay no attention to the, the you know, how we, how we make these learning models work over here while regulating over here. Do you right. know what I mean? Like he was, he's kind of doing the, the uh, Zuckerberg thing of like trying to get out ahead of saying, no, we're for more regulation, but actually, you know, specifically trying to create a blind spot for the things they don't right. want regulated. Right. Um, but it was interesting to, you know, have this hearing 
in front of the Senate and, um, you know, air some of these uh, questions. I mean, we just had the, again, the White House pushing on AI ethics. We've now having, you know, AI incident hearings. So there's movement around regulation, but there tends to be just like social media for the past, what, five years, this Mm -hmm. song and dance of Mm -hmm. we are very concerned about this when nothing, you know, not much happens outside of maybe, you know, the FEC or the FCC. Sure. So what do you think? Do you think this will, will cause any action on Congress's part? Um... Hard to say. Hard oh, to say. hard sigh. Yeah. Listeners, it's... did you hear that sigh? <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of them are starting to realize that AI is moving very, very quickly, way faster than I, I think any of them envisioned. And yeah. there is definitely, and they voiced this during that Senate hearing, a possible threat on democracy. And they need yeah. to do something, especially considering our current government structure was not designed to support us being in a digital first world. It feels like from a macro perspective that the people who've been working in AI now feel a little bit like the dog that caught the car. You know, like sure. you had the God, that's what was it? The godfather of AI at Google leaving and you yeah. know, throwing up red flags. You have all these people who've been working in this space for a long time. And then generative AI, like, you know, chat GPT, stable diffusion, et cetera, have had such an impact just over mm-hmm. the last six months and are causing all this conversation, all this energy, all this new investment. That now the people who've been working in it for a long time are like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, I have my feelings about that godfather of AI person, by the way, because there were so many other people that were, for lack of better words, whistleblowers coming from Google that were fired. Um, oh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and of course, marginalized folks, a black woman. Uh, I think her name yep. is Timnit. Timnit. Um, but yeah, just people have been saying this for years now and now it's, you know, everybody's up in arms and panicked. So now that the Godfather quote unquote has spoken. So we'll see what happens. I mean, they were also the ones that, um, pointed out when that letter about AI came out that was Mm -hmm. like, we need to pause. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they said that it was focused on all the wrong things, like all the long-termism and not the short-term, like how AI is having an impact right now. Right. Um, so I definitely think you're right. There are voices that aren't being heard that have legitimate critiques. But yeah. we're having Senate hearings. I mean, we're airing the stuff. I just I'm always skeptical. I want to be optimistic. This is one of those things. Again, I said this about the uh, White House ethics, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be optimistic about these things. I've just seen how, especially to your point about when it comes to things around tech where it moves so fast and there's so little understanding of it in D.C. Right. That it tends to be a lot of, you know, kind of hand waving song and dance jazz hands for, you know, the cameras and not a lot of action. Yeah. Unrelated, but related. I feel like we have not heard much about TikTok recently because remember there was that whole influx about like the ban. Um, I heard something about Montana passing a a bill to to ban it in the state. I don't know what's been going on with that, but yeah, it's been really, really quiet, like eerily quiet. (laughs) <laughs> to say the least yeah. um wait was it montana that banned it i remember montana was floating banned it but i'm I'm confusing about what what they, they I... banned that and then there was the also the transgender bullshit that they did and i might be confusing oh those two in my head i yeah okay so yeah montana passes a tiktok ban the first of its kind um this is coming from npr um 
a bill that would ban TikTok over the possibility that the, well, we know the reasons why, um, but the bill would make it illegal to download TikTok in the state with penalties up to $10,000 a day for any entity such as Apple and Google's app stores or TikTok itself. If enacted, it would uh, go into effect January 2024. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So, you know, I think before we were hearing about like bans as it relates to like government officials, but now this is just average citizens. Um, if it's on yeah. your personal device, that's terrifying. Up to news. ten thousand dollars a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, I'm skeptical about the actual implementation of something like that. Well, the legislation plus passed, so we'll see. We'll see. I know, but how do you enforce it? I don't, I don't know. At Who the knows? state level, it just, I, I'm skeptical. Montana we'll see. of all places. We will see. Yeah. Um, there was a group of business owners that are pushing back on a TikTok ban, talking about the benefit outweighing the harm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, because they've used it as a platform. I and mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago about yep. you've built this entire economy on top of TikTok. How do you just pull the rug out from under it? It's right. super tough. So many folks are thriving on their influencers, business, small businesses, to, to your point. Um, and yep. that would leave such Not just a the creator goal. economy. It's actually like helping. Yep. Um, yeah. Anyway, Ugh. we'll see. Yes. This all this still feels like in the ether. We've been talking about it for weeks. This is what I mean about the song and dance. Mm-hmm. Like we, we talk about the regulation. We talk around it. But who ultimately wants to be responsible for shutting down parts of the economy? Right. There has to be a huge, not only does it have to be a huge reason, it has to be consensus around that reason mm-hmm. in, you know, Congress. And it's really tough to get on almost any issue right now. Right. <sighs> All right. What else do we got? Uh, th- one last thing before we get into our deep dive is there was this fascinating study about employee trust in leadership from Gallup mm-hmm. and how it is falling. Only 21% of employees trust organizational leadership. Yep. That is a stark number. It's terrifying. (laughs) But I mean, I think as always, and they talk about this in the study, the study is from Gallup. um, A lot of this is a result of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, And so a lot of trust has been been lost. Um, I think people are seeing layoffs happening and that's terrifying. A lot of folks are unsure about the future, the economy. Um, Mm -hmm. communication is not always the best within organizations. I see it all the time where employees are constantly anxious about job security and the future of the organization and leaders are reluctant to share what's going on behind the scenes and provide them with updates. So there's a constant push and pull and it's, it's a struggle, but I think there are, are actionable steps that leaders can take to build that trust. Um, and it's going to yeah. be necessary to retain employees moving forward. Notably, they call it the trifecta of leadership. Mm-hmm. And when all three of these are strong, it says employees uh, have the highest levels of trust. Communicate clearly. Talk about that a lot in terms yes. of transparency. Yep. Inspire confidence in the future. Yep. And lead and support change. Oh, man. That just, that just got me right here, Adriel. <laughs> Things we talk about a all lot the time. in all terms the time. of being a change leader, communicating clearly, inspiring confidence. Um, yep. these, are, these are really important things, especially in a hybrid remote work environment. Absolutely. What I think they, yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, what I think is fascinating about the trend lines here mm-hmm. is that it actually is, uh, it's not just COVID-19, but like if you look at the, how the long they've been doing this study. Yeah. 
It was actually super low in like 2011, 2012. Mm. It'd be interesting to go back and see the, um, the you know, macro environment back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, were there in terms any of how the economy was doing and events? lots of other things? Yeah, yeah, because you can see how it started going up and mm-hmm. it kind of peaked at 2019, and then obviously we had the pandemic, right. and then it kind of started dipping again. Yeah, but um, last thing I'll add on here is that they identified that more than half of hybrid managers and leaders are not receiving any training to help them uh, effectively manage the hybrid work environment. Um, not surprising to me. I mean, not surprising <laughs> at all. At all. It's a completely different skill set. And you we know. just assume apples to apples in terms of if you were a great in-person manager, you're going to be a great digital manager. I mean, a completely different mm-hmm. set of tools, completely different skill set. You almost have to yep. use twice the amount of energy to get the same message across. Right. So, yeah, totally unsurprising. Yeah. We, don't, we do not prioritize that. I mean, we were failing before, honestly, when it came to yeah, right. <laughs> educating managers in person. So there were so I can't tell you how many managers and leaders I've encountered who had never managed a, a person a day in their lives and were in yes. senior management roles and leadership roles, had no formal training, no hadn't even put, picked up a, a leadership book. So yes. <laughs> it's it's terrifying. What's the, and is it the Dilbert principle that everyone gets promoted to one level above their competency? Mm, yes. <laughs> I mean, how many organizations are like that? Like you are you're a really great individual contributor, you're a high performer, you're great at the job, you understand the ins and outs. Uh, and then you get promoted into a management position and all of a sudden you're not in the day-to-day anymore. Right. You're helping people do the day-to-day execution. Yep. Completely different set of skills. <sighs> The only parallel that I have to it is when when you were in college and mm-hmm. you would go to these classes and you're like, this professor is horrible. How yes. did you get to this position? You realize they were hired because of their research, not yep. because they were great at teaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. So imagine imagine that in a corporate environment. And that's what we're dealing with pre-pandemic, to your point. Not even, not even in a remote hybrid world. Yes. Completely different skill set. Absolutely. Woo. It's heavy. We could do it. I mean, we should we should circle back on that and do a whole whole podcast we just should. on that. I agree. But what are we gonna do today? Tell me what you brought for your deep dive. Oh, I'm circling back to our <laughs> our good old pal DeSantis, um, who has finally signed the bill to block uh, DEI from public colleges. So it is now a law or going to be a law effective July first. Ugh, gross. I know. I just. I mean, I, I think we need to talk through, like, what, what are the repercussions here? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, there's going to be some backlash, but, like, in other red states, beyond public colleges, like, there's going to there's gonna be a lot, of, a lot of cascading effects from Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are we deep diving right. on on your end? I want to talk about um, the rates of depression mm. in work and specifically how uh, remote work contributes to that. Mm-hmm. So. There was a um, research that came out talking about how basically like when we isolate everyone, which remote work is very isolating, (laughs) it contributes to rates of depression. And I kind of want to talk about it in the context of how we deal with mental health in the workplace in general. Sure. And, you know, a lot of people are suffering from learning disabilities or chronic mental conditions. And a lot of this is under the radar, mm-hmm. things that we don't talk about that are culturally we may shame people for. Yeah. And these are, you know, especially when it comes from a diversity, equity, and inclusion you know, standpoint, these are things that differentiate people that they can off- off- 
awfully be marginalized for right and are not visible yep. i know a few weeks ago we talked about there are lots when we t- think about diversity we're often talking about what can we see that is different sure and these are things about people that are different that we do not see or acknowledge on on any given day so i, I want to look at that from a leadership perspective and mm-hmm. just say like as leaders how do we be conscious of this how do we create accommodations if need be how do we think about productivity when people are dealing with mental health crises and then specifically, you know, how we do that in a remote environment, which is contributing to making this worse. Let's get into it. I like that. Let's start there. All right, let's do it. All right. Well, um, I mean, if research says that people are happier and more productive, they are likely to stay with their employer. How do you deal with people who are not happy, not productive? Not necessarily has anything to do with their employer. Sure. You know, like it just has to do with what their mind is doing to them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I, you know, just in full transparency, have struggled with depression and anxiety. I know you've been pretty open about, oh, yeah. you know, your struggles with that, too. Definitely. So I think we both empathize with the people who are dealing with us. Yes. Um, I, there is a side note that I want to say that you and I, as, you know, People or entrepreneurs out on our own have a special kind of category of this Mm -hmm. because we don't necessarily have employers being the ones like knocking on our door asking for productivity. We kind of have to get over it for ourselves. Absolutely. And I was reading a study the other day that basically says people who (laughs) like people with um, ADHD and, uh, and, you know, anxiety and depression are more likely to become entrepreneurs. It's just a whole other thing. So yeah. like, we kind of do it to ourselves. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. Um, anyway, but like, I, I'm just fascinated by this from a DEI perspective. Of, yeah. Like, you've got people who are who are dealing with these behind the scenes, very not visible things. And as a leader, sometimes all you see is X person I don't know, signed off of Slack for a couple of hours sure. or didn't get this thing done mm-hmm. or, you know, like it, it turns into this kind of productivity nagging cycle of like, hey, where are you? What are you doing? Right. And if the person doesn't feel comfortable telling their boss or mm-hmm. even HR in a lot of instances, hey, I'm dealing with this thing. Mm-hmm. How do we create, a co- like include them and create accommodations for them? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think one of the, the starting points is awareness. Um, and so helping leaders realize how impactful mental health is on productivity and on their employees. I think this also ties to what we were just talking about and that study that talked about only 21% of employees are trusting their leaders, right? If, if you lack trust, you're it's very unlikely that you're going to speak up and be like, hey, I'm depressed or I'm feeling anxious and I need some time off or I need help. Um, yeah. I'm going to confess this thing that is potentially going to marginalize me and label me something, you know, as a, as, you know, why would you, Right. why would you tell people that? Right. And if you already belong to a marginalized or underrepresented identity within that workplace, it's even more unlikely that you're going to speak up and say anything. Um, And people fear the repercussions of speaking up about mental health. They fear, you know, this is going to affect my promotion or you know, a bonus that I might receive. I don't want to be perceived as less than or less capable. And so they're less likely to speak up and, and, um, you know, express that they're dealing with mental health issues. Um, I myself have, have hesitated to share my experiences around depression, anxiety, and ADHD with other people, because I'm like, what is this person going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm less capable? Um, 
And that in itself triggers my anxiety and depression even more. Exactly. It doesn't help me at all because then I'm just not productive and I don't get the things done that I need to. So I think a lot of awareness needs to happen. And I think that leaders especially need to be working really, really hard to um, build that trust that is missing. And then they also need to be taking into consideration what's within their scope um, and bandwidth in terms of providing resources and support for their employees. Even if you can't offer, you know, benefits because financially it's not an option that extend beyond, let's say, what's included in a typical healthcare plan, could you perhaps, you know bring in people to to talk more openly about their experiences. Could you, if you are a leader, which I know there are plenty of leaders out there dealing with mental health, could you be more transparent and open um, and role yeah. model that so that people- Demonstrate vulnerability. Exactly. Make it okay to to speak up and share your experiences because that is going to kind of take the weight off of the shoulders of folks that are constantly worried about how they're going to be perceived. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such an important point is to try to where you can, obviously, within reason, um, like confess what you are struggling with. Mm-hmm. It creates so much more safety for the people that you are leading. Yep. Um, but let's say uh, hypothetically. Yep. Let's say you've got you do know about the you know inner struggles of someone, whether or not it's a learning disorder, whether or not it's a chronic mental health condition, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um. But, you know, that you can't then go and share that with the rest of the team. So you've right. got someone that you need to, like, make accommodations for. Mm-hmm. But the whole team is kind of looking at the team together. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you navigate that as a leader in terms of, like, where you can help out, you know, people where you can, but, like, not necessarily let them... I don't know. I, it, to me, it feels very easy to say, like, I'm letting this person, quote unquote, get away with something sure. that I'm not letting other people. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I love this because I just had a conversation around this and um, I'm actually facilitating a workshop later today about this very issue around trust. We did not plan that. And team building. We did not. We did not. We did not. Um, but so when we think about trust, it's like the one on one trust that we have with people. And then there's trust that rolls into this idea of psychological safety, which is amongst your team. This idea that we're we're safe for interpersonal risk taking, speaking up, uh, you know, admitting to mistakes, problems, et cetera. And so, you know, in this situation, I think there's two things that leaders can do. First, it's having that one on one conversation with that person that is going through something to say, what are you comfortable with me sharing? And what would you like me to um, keep confidential so that you have an idea of how much you can share with the rest of your team. And then in terms of your the rest of your team, before this even happens, you should be working to build up psychological safety and get to a place where people understand that there's always going to be a push and a pull. Um, and we are a team. So if something's going on with one person, two people, three people, however many, that we may have to temporarily help, you know, pick up that slack for lack of better words. And so getting people to understand that I may not be able to tell you every single thing that's going on, but right now, you know, Caleb's got something going on. We need to distribute this work a little bit better so that they can take time off or whatever it may be. And your team not feel frustrated or um, bothered by that. Um, And recognizing if your team is already overextended, what else can you do? Do you need to reach out to the rest of your leadership team or senior leaders to say, Hey, we need more headcount because right now, you know, we, we need more support. By the way, there are tons of consultants out here (laughs) and get that 1099 (laughs) going and, you know, hire someone temporarily for additional support. Do what you have to do. There's always 
away. Um, but again, I think that individual trust needs to be built. And then you need to also be continuously working on building trust amongst your team so that yes. that support exists there for them. The best defense is a good offense. Create psychological safety first yeah. so that people can share with you what they're struggling with. Be prepared. I mean, I do think it's interesting to think about if, if it does get to the point of severe depression, like, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, something that is really de- debilitating. Yeah. Um, like that's when, you know, we've got to go to our HR departments. We've got to consult yeah. with people to like, to your point about, you know, long-term disability or like support in terms of outside assistance. Mm-hmm. Like it does get to the extreme where the, like, if the team is not functioning because this person can't do their job, right. you know, that's a, that's a tough conversation to have, but it, but it does happen. Yeah, I, I have someone close to me that is going through that very thing. And they've been off for where it may. It's been like two months that they had to take wow. time off because they reached their breaking point And they were doing more harm to their team than good because they weren't able to function and get through their day to day. And so yeah. at that point, your team has no choice but to figure it out. And your leaders have no choice but to figure out what to do because you've already gone to HR and you've already made arrangements to take time off so that you can take care of your mental health, which there's no shame in doing that. And I, again, companies need to better prepare themselves. Organizations and leaders need to better prepare themselves because unfortunately, I think we're only going to see more instances of this, um, especially Mm -hmm. as you know, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis right now. And there also just aren't enough providers out there. I've been looking for a new therapist for the past two and a half months. It is a struggle. And half of it is there aren't really any providers that meet my needs. And the other half is the few that do meet my needs are either A, not accepting new uh, patients or clients, or B, don't take my insurance. And I'm not paying four to $500 per session. (laughs) <laughs> so we've done the same thing with several of us and our families yeah. and then we'll get a diagnosis like my son uh, diagnosed with ADHD is mm-hmm. pretty severe ADHD and we can't find him medication that the insurance will cover because yeah. there's an ADHD medication shortage. shortage so yeah there's a whole macro structural environment around being able to support people with mental health or you know disabilities yeah that is terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> that isn't necessarily the responsibility of your workplace but needs to be taken into consideration yes but i do agree with you that like there's an organizational infrastructure around supporting these folks mm-hmm. that is hard needs to be built needs to be considered again as an as a diversity and inclusion issue right i you mean because to, to your point historically it has not been uh, an issue for workplaces to take care of however i think moving forward more organizations and companies need to consider how they could be more integrated with healthcare, perhaps, or mental health care. We spend so much time, I mean, not you and I, because we are entrepreneurs, but a lot of folks, <laughs> especially folks that are working for and with organizations internally, they're spending so much of their lives, hours of their lives with this organization. If you're spending eight hours out of your yeah. day, if not more, which a lot of folks are working more than eight hours these days, why is your organization yeah. not supporting your mental health and your well-being? It goes back to the what? Why do we ask people to bring their full selves to work and mm. then be afraid of who their full selves are? Right? Like we can't we can't do both. But but yeah. I think that there's like <laughs> I struggle with this because I do think that you know in terms of I think what w- w- the reason why my brain breaks a little bit on this issue is because so much of the quote unquote wellness mm-hmm. initiatives that happen within companies. Mm-hmm are meant to support some of these issues, but actually are just like lipstick on a pig. Oh, yeah. You know, they're just like, yeah. 
oh, we're going to have yoga. Come yeah. Because we're going to have yoga in the morning. Yeah. Or, you know, we're going to... It's it's that kind of shit mm-hmm. where it's not, like, actually dealing with the underlying issues. It's we're going to we're going to try to support your burnout because we need you to work hard. Right. 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 People are afraid to really get in the weeds with these conversations. And it's unfortunate because it's so prevalent. So many of us are so often suffering in silence and again, fearful of speaking up or sharing our experiences. And we know that sharing experiences can help normalize things and actually reduce a lot of the anxiety and worry that we have around having these conversations. So I really hope moving forward that more leaders are pushing for us to have conversations and discussions and going beyond just, hey, let's meet up for yoga. No, let's actually talk about what does burnout actually look like? And within the context of our organization, what are some things that we've seen? What are some things that we can do to support each other to make sure that we, you know, have that additional layer of support internally here where you spend so much of your uh, uh, hours awake of your lives? Um, and so I think we we really need to see more of that. And I, I hope leaders that are tuned in are are writing, writing this down, taking notes and, and thinking about ways yeah. to start to uh, to implement this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really important, and I do think it starts with leadership in terms of leadership's yep. ability to model it and be vulnerable themselves. Yep. But let's let's talk about. I mean, this this study was specifically about how this has gotten worse in a remote world. Yeah. And you totally under- can understand why. I mean, we talked about the loneliness epidemic. Like you are isolated. It's and isolation. So you're dealing with all these things by yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have the same access to work friends. You don't. People can't see you going through something. Right. So. How do you, we talked about how leaders don't have the skills to be able to manage in a remote world. Yeah. They definitely don't have the skills to be able to manage this kind of thing in a remote world. So what do you do to model that vulnerability when you are on Teams or on Slack or whatever, you know, day to day? I mean, I think you can, of course, encourage people to try to get out. You can try to, I I have a couple of clients that have started doing sort of like regional meetups on a quarterly basis, encouraging people to come to those. Um, you know, if, if you have enough remote workers in a central location, you could try to plan things for them on a regular basis. Um, if not, you could always encourage them to network outside of just your organization, but there are a lot more industry events coming up, a lot of conferences these days. So just encouraging people to get out and explore and just interact with other humans. We are as humans meant to interact with other people, we are communal. Um, and I know that that's a lot harder to do, especially for more introverted folks. And I know a lot of introverted folks have yeah. been like, we love remote work and I love working from home. Yes, but over time it can really, especially if you work isolated, um, it, it can really take a toll on you. Even if you are an introverted person, like we naturally need to be yeah. around other humans. Um, there's science behind it, even like the the hormones that you know are uh, that happen and that are generated when you're around other people. When you hug someone, you know there are all these feel feel good emotions that come from that. So there is that physical element that still needs to happen for people. And so I think again, leaders encouraging people to do that, reminding people to do that, um, can be very helpful as well. But it, it's of yeah, course not agreed. all on them. It's not all on them. Yeah. So we need to figure out ways to get people in front of other people so that they don't feel alone, so that they get all those, you know, endorphin boosts or whatever yes. you're just talking about. Yep. I think we also have to do that communicate clearly and that vulnerability demonstration, again, with twice the amount of effort, mm-hmm. whether that's via Zoom or wherever it is, like yep. a lot more intentionality because people don't 
absorb the messages the same without all our body language and all of the things that we are missing in digital communications. Right, exactly. So we have to we have to make up some ground. It's great that we're giving people flexibility. I know like a lot of the leaders I know love the flexibility. They've got, you know, less commute time, time with family, all that. We just need to make up ground, you know, in order to be able to have that flexibility. Absolutely. All right, what's our what's our I was going to say favorite governor of Florida. What's the opposite of favorite? Our what? What's our uh, oh God? What the what the hell is Ron DeSantis doing right now? <laughs> it, it hurts. It it honestly hurts me to just even say his name to talk about him. I'm like every time I think this individual can't become a shittier human, he just shows his ass. Like truly. Um, so he, he finally signed his little bill into effect. So it is now a law. Um, this past Monday he signed it and it is going to ban DEI in Florida's public colleges and universities. He's such an ass that he signed it at the new college of Florida, which is where earlier this year he appointed those six new board trustees, um, who are all conservative allies. Um, and he accused the school's leadership of like, quote unquote, over emphasizing, emphasizing DEI, um, through like critical race theory and, and gender ideology, which he said is basically, um, he's, he's basically saying that Florida has no place for, or no room for liberal arts education. He even made a comment, like, if you want that stuff, go to Berkeley. I'm, I just, he called it, this is, this is my favorite quote. (laughs) He called it, if DI is better viewed as standing for discrimination, exclusion, uh-huh. and indoctrination. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, things like that really upset me because hearing him say that and, and reading these things, it's very clear to me that he doesn't actually know what the heck DEI even stands for or the of type of work doesn't. we do. And so he's just... This is such a straw man argument. Yes. Like, it just, it, uh, yeah. it, it's so frustrating. He's just perpetuating all of these these anti DEI sentiments, and that has no place in Florida or anywhere for that matter. Um, and so, this ban is not only um, putting restrictions on you know DEI teams within these public colleges, but it's also banning what can be taught. So we're censoring education, mm-hmm. which is just hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> um, yeah. and what's supposed to be a democracy? Um, and so basically courses around, again, critical race, um, anything that is challenging historical events as it, it relates to the institution of America. Um, and so he's cracking down on what he calls, quote unquote, woke indoctrination. And so, you know, this has been he's been discussing this for like two years now. I think they've, they've banned, you know, books and resources in K through 12 schools that touch on anything related to DEI. Um, And just to note for anyone that's new to this, you know, this is not just relevant to Florida. Texas has also been working on a similar bill to ban DEI. Florida's become the model. That's Mm -hmm. what's so scary about this. Exactly. And so, you know, part of this is DeSantis is trying to gain Republican supporters. I quite frankly don't think, I think he's wasting his time. We already have Trump on CNN, so I don't even know what, what the hell he's doing. <laughs> but like, yeah. you know, um, but this is scary because it, we're seeing, like you said, Florida's kind of role modeling this process for other states to do the same. Um, and so we're we're going to see other states start to limit DEI initiatives um, when it comes to hiring processes, when it comes to admitting students to to colleges and universities. 
um, there have already been private universities and colleges like reaching out to the government saying, okay, so how does this affect us? And will this have right. implications long-term? And so there's a lot of fear there. There's also a lot of fear around how this may impact the U.S. Supreme case courses that are related to race relations. Um, and I think there are a few of them right. that have to be decided on later this year. But there are just so many things wrong with this. And it has the ability to really be a snowball effect uh, across our, our nation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, we already talked about how other red state leaders are seeing this as a model that they're trying to, trying to pick up. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, it's starting with higher ed, but, you know, we've seen lots of laws and, and proposed, you know, initiatives coming out of Florida that are targeting not just higher ed, but basically any influence the government there can have over the private sector or other, other you know, so-called woke, um, you know, institutions right. in Florida. Right. Um, and I just, I think it's hard for some of us to wrap our head. When we look at this on the surface, mm-hmm. those of us who come from a, a certain political bent have a hard time seeing how people who talk all about freedom mm-hmm. and free, free speech and all of this can look at something like DEI and then do this kind of censorship. Right. It just seems so hypocritical on its surface. And I had a friend who studies right-wing politics, um, actually, like, basically, like, shadowed Steve Bannon in parts of Europe for many years, like, got a PhD in this. Wow. And she framed this up to me in a way that really was a light bulb moment for me. And she said that, in reality, what they view as freedom is the ability to not have to think about these things. Do you know what I mean? Like the freedom yeah. that they offer is the freedom to just go about your life, mm-hmm. live it the way that you want to live it, do the things that you want to do, and not have to consider the historical implications of the school that you go to or yeah. you know the marginalized groups around you that you interact with every day. Like that's what they're offering freedom from. That's so interesting because it it's like... So it only applies to you, right? It doesn't apply to marginalized identities like trans folks who just want to live their lives in peace. Yeah. I mean, that's why (laughs) there's, I mean, we could poke holes in it all day long in terms of how it actually works, right? But that's, that's the mindset. When we talk about freedom, we're just like freedom from responsibility, essentially. That's, that's how I think about it. Um, But (sighs) just, I think it's important for those of us who obviously don't agree with this Mm -hmm. or are especially working toward trying to consider more, you know, equity initiatives within companies that are reluctant to look at some of these things from a political lens, that this is what we are up against is, you know, people who are going to work the refs, people who are going to, um, you know, just try to try to label things as woke in order to get people to stop and consider whether or not they should do it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really scary stuff. And, you know, the U.S. has role modeled diversity, equity, and inclusion for a lot of other countries. And so I also fear what <laughs> implications that's going to have as well as they see yeah. us start to ramp up on this anti-DEI trend. Yeah. Well, um, the U.S. has some very unique both history yes you know issues yes but also um in terms of our status as being a country that has had all kinds of different immigrants from all kinds of different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. this quote-unquote melting pot 
um, you know, idea that is kind of woven into our history. Right. That, you know, other countries that have mostly, um, you know, not monotonous, what's the word I'm looking for? Mostly um, monochrome types of, (laughs) you know, native people that kind of look like, like, homogenous, thank you. (laughs) Mostly homogenous populations haven't had to think about. Um, or if they do, like they're they're people who you know are immigrants or whatever, are even more marginalized than they are here. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying yes. We're gonna we're gonna export this kind of bullshit to a lot of other countries that have been honestly sympathetic to similar right wing ideals. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's scary. I mean, I, I I just think that those of us again who are pro these things can't be afraid of them being politicized. I think we have to stand on principle and push back. Absolutely. And if we are afraid of getting into the politics of this, we've already lost. Like that's what they want. They want mm-hmm. us to be afraid of the politics. Yep. Yep. We'll see what happens. We'll keep you updated. It's heavy. Yeah. Oh, the the other thing I forgot to mention with this whole thing was uh DeSantis mocking the protesters. I don't know if you heard about this. And he was no, like, oh, I, didn't hear about I that thought part. there would be more of them. <laughs> like while he was signing the bill into law. I just. Yeah, because he wants the photo op. Oh, oh my He goodness. wants the photo op of, of getting protested so he can, you know, increase his right wing bona fides. Just not a good human. Just I don't understand. It, it grinds my gears that folks like him end up in the positions that they're in. Really does. Yeah. <sighs> well, I think that is a good segue to talking about what's good this week yes i love i'm glad we're ending on happy happy notes so let's let's transition to our talking about one one good thing this week all right adriel what is your one good thing this week well you know it can be seen as good it can also be seen as bad and possibly neutral but uh san francisco (laughs) has uh proposed five million dollars in reparations and cash payments and housing aid to try to bring back black folks um bring black bring back black residents that is a tongue twister to san francisco (laughs) um and so they've been talking they've had talks about reparations for some time now so i'm really curious to see how it it rolls out um and how it pans out and if they'll actually follow through because again Mm -hmm. we when when it comes to anything related to or that touches diversity equity inclusion there's just so much lip service and not enough action and so I'm really curious to see if they're going to actually pay up. Um, and I'm also curious to see if people are going to want to move back to San Francisco. It is not in the best of conditions at the moment. It is so, not. No. Uh, you know, in addition to paying folks these reparations to return, what else are y'all going to be doing to make it actually a livable place? And how are you going to be cleaning up and supporting those that need uh, mental health care and uh, help yeah. with addiction because it is I mean my last trip to San Francisco I I was floored like my jaw was on the ground I hadn't been there in maybe like a year and a half two years and to see how it, it it's changed I mean a lot of businesses have shuttered but just the sheer amount of folks um, that are unhoused and that were just clearly uh strung out on drugs and just in the middle of the street it, it was very yeah. very sad to see so i'm curious to see how they're going to support those efforts in addition to trying to shift the demographics of the city yeah it's it's bad i mean uh, i got into 
I got into a little bit of an argument with a friend of mine recently about mm-hmm. the structural causes of this because it's just it's so hard to unpack mm-hmm. how much of the economic divestment moved out to Silicon Valley and other parts of you know the Silicon Valley uh, the San Francisco area sure. like the larger area um, you know on top of specific policy decisions mm-hmm. that are you know making this worse or better like it's just it's 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 bad yeah <laughs> so yeah. I agree with you that it's got to get better in a myriad of ways not just paying folks to return absolutely absolutely yeah yep but you're right i mean in the sh- am i for that idea in theory on a, in it in itself mm-hmm. yeah it sounds great yeah but yeah. just can't be isolated absolutely well my one good thing is i just there's so much statistics and data out there right now about worker happiness and productivity mm-hmm. it is fascinating to me and some of it it seems contradictory on its surface sure. so i love like digging into it and trying to figure out what the root causes of some of this but workers are happier than they've been in decades interesting according to a study job satisfaction hit a 36 year high in 2022 huh. isn't that really interesting so so they are saying that the um there are two reasons that that's the case one is that as a labor market tightened the quality of jobs and wages went up and two we have more flexibility to do work now than we've ever had so the two things so we talked last week i think about um how productivity has actually plummeted Mm -hmm. and the root causes of that and now we're saying that workers are happier i think that there has been this generational disconnect between productivity and wages especially for Mm -hmm. a long time where wages kind of started to stagnate as related to inflation meanwhile we were squeezing more and more and more productivity out of workers since the you know 70s and 80s so i think that what the pandemic did is kind of hit the reset button Mm -hmm. on wait i'm working so much for so little yeah and now i can squeeze out i can ask for more in terms of wages i have more flexibility i'm going to push back on you know the world of work in my life yeah talked about the kind of generational divide in this so yes we are less productive Mm -hmm. as you know in terms of the long-term trends but we're also happier in terms of the long-term trends isn't that fascinating it is very fascinating i think you know with folks working from home, there was increased visibility and more discussions around pay, benefits, et cetera. And so people could take that time to assess, like, am I actually being compensated properly? Um, There's been a lot of uh, grassroots, for lack of better words, uh, pay equity movements. Like I I have access to a spreadsheet, an open spreadsheet where folks in the DEI space, um, actually white DEI professionals share what their rates are and how much they charge for workshops, right? And so Having nice. more visibility into things like that, I think, has has shifted how people approach, you know, switching jobs and asking for promotions and things like that because they are more aware of what they should be um, compensated with. But um, what I thought was also interesting about the study is that they said amongst the happiest workers, it, there are people who voluntarily switch jobs during the pandemic and individuals who are working in hybrid world, worlds with a mix of in-person and remote work. I think that goes back to what we were just saying yeah. about mental health. Yep, on par. Right? Like, you get the flexibility of yep. remote work mm-hmm. while getting the mental health benefits Absolutely. of being able to be around people, be creative with other people, feel like you're part of a team, getting the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, let's let's stipulate that 
short-term economic conditions are iffy. Mm-hmm. People are being laid off in specific industries. We One thing we didn't talk about at the top of the pod is we still don't know if we're going to actually be able to raise the debt ceiling or we're about to cause our own you know, economic crisis. Got so like, what, two weeks? who knows how long this will hold, but I, I'm encouraged by the macro trend being that we are moving in the right direction in terms of adjusting the expectations and the role of work in our lives. Yeah. I like that. Way to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Always look over the long, long run. Usually, usually you can find a lot more things to be optimistic about. For sure. For <laughs> usually. Sure. Yeah. Cool. All right, Adriel, always a pleasure to talk to you. Always. Looking forward to next week. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Think about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more about Adrielle and her diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. You can find more information about me, Caleb Gardner, and my work and hire me to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And you can find my book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold.